In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening, as we should and do every evening or any time we begin to pray. We always ask the Holy Spirit's guidance. So help us to open our minds and hearts to set aside the cares of the day and just try to dwell on what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So give us the strength and the grace to really be obedient. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you. I'm sure all of you did your homework um, and did the readings. Did you find uh, that you were rereading something that you've already read? Did it sound a little repetitious? Um, well, in ancient writing, the writers had no way to emphasize something, and so they would do so by repeating it, sometimes using different words, different scenario, uh, or different setting. But they would constantly repeat, and you'll find that throughout John's Gospel. Uh, repetitions of what he considers very important items or very important points or teachings, whatever. Um, but he uses it in different ways or different words so that as you read, for example, we're going to be talking about the allegory of the vine and the branches tonight. But uh, in chapters uh, 14, uh, you read the same kind of thing by abiding in Christ, all right? And that's exactly what we have here. John kind of repeats a number of things, but at least he does it in slightly different ways uh, or a slightly different scene so that it isn't just repetition. Okay. But there is a point. And as I pointed out in the home reading assignment, in uh, John, I mean, in the Luke's writing of the Acts of the Apostles, he gives us three different scenarios of the conversion of St. Paul. And that is because the conversion of St. Paul was a crucial turning point in the early church. And so by repeating it, hopefully the reader gets that point, that it is very vital to the early church. And we have that in all of the um, writings and practically all of the various books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, which we will show you tonight. The vine and the branches. How many of you have done pruning? I don't necessarily mean pruning of, vine, of grapevines, but other kinds of pruning. And have you noticed if you left the branches on the ground or wherever, that they withered rather quickly? And uh, none of them would bear fruit if they were fruit-bearing branches um, because they were not connected to the source of energy and light. So the branches wither rather quickly and are really not much good for anything else. And so they are generally thrown out. Uh, that's really the basic idea of what Jesus is trying to tell us. 
But who is the vine and who are the branches? That's something that John is changing from what was the traditional thinking in Judaism prior to this writing. Let me give you a couple examples. If you go to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, now, rather than you running to that, uh, listen, if you will, please. This is from Isaiah chapter 5, written roughly the 8th century B.C. Let me now sing of my friend, my friend's song concerning his vineyard. My friend had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He spaded it, cleared it of stones, and planted the choicest vines. Within it, he built a watchtower and hewed out a vine press. Then he looked for the crops of grapes, but what it yielded was wild grapes. Now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I had not done? Why, when I looked for the crop of grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Now I will let you know what I mean to do with my vineyard. Take away its hedge, give it a grazing, give it to grazing, break through its wall, let it be trampled. Yes, I will make it a ruin. It shall not be pruned or hoed, but overgrown with thorns and briars. I will command the clouds not to send rain upon it. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So the metaphor being used here of the vine is actually the nation of Israel as it is implied and used here. Again, I'll just read this part of it. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are its cherished plant. He looked for judgment, but see bloodshed for justice, but hark the outcry. The whole idea of the Jewish nation, God establishing the Jewish nation beginning with Abraham way back in about the 20th century B.C. There were no Jews before that. In fact, Abraham was not a Jew. So when the Jewish people call Abraham their father, they forget that Abraham was not a Jew. The idea of Judaism as a nation did not come into existence until the tribes of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had moved down to Egypt. But I'm getting ahead of the story. The whole idea of God establishing the nation of Israel was to begin a process, the whole plan of salvation, that began with a people that were brought together through God himself. He was really their guide, and he was their father. Yes, he had to have an earthly partner in the process, and that was Abraham to begin with. And 
his covenant was made with Abraham for a purpose of bringing forth a nation who would then establish customs and traditions and rules and regulations and commandments, etc., etc. Sound like you old Brenner, don't I? Um, anyways, for the whole purpose of beginning a foundation out of which comes the Messiah. All right. And so the people of Judah or Jerusalem or Judaism, whatever you want to call it, was really the promised and chosen people, but for a purpose. Not because of who they were or what they were, but what would come out of their collective beings. All right. Unfortunately, they got a little carried away with the idea of being the chosen people or the chosen race, and they thought that they were so great uh, that they took it personally. And that wasn't God's intention. All right. But the idea of Israel, the nation of Israel, ancient Judaism, was always looked upon as a beginning of something greater. And that's the way it should have been. Now, let's jump ahead to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 15, I think it's 15, no, no, that'll be Mark 12. This is the gospel of Mark now, written in the middle of the first century A.D., and it's almost the same kind of scenario. A man planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug out a vat, erected a tower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went on a journey. In due time, he dispatched a man in his service of produce from the vineyard. I'm sorry. In due time, he dispatched a man in his service to the tenants to obtain uh, from them his share of produce from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him off empty-handed. A second time, or another time, he sent them another servant. Him, too, they beat over the head and treated shamefully. He sent yet another, and they killed him. So, too, with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He still had to send one more, the son whom he loved. He sent him to... <coughs> to them at last as a last resort, thinking, they will have to respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, here is the one who will inherit everything. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him and killed him and dragged him outside the vineyard. Now, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? He will come and destroy those tenants and turn his vineyard over to others. There's a little bit more now to this allegory than the, or the story than the first one. Here, the various 
messengers who were sent by the owner of the vineyard to collect produce or collect rents, whatever, were really the prophets. Because he mentioned three specific, and then he said many others, the three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And the others are the other 12 of the literary prophets. Okay. And of course, the son is whom? Jesus. Yes. Okay. So that is a scenario. Again, the idea is that Israel was to be God's platform for establishing his plan of salvation and having it come forth from that point on. Yet the Jews had their own ideas and they weren't accepting what God wanted. They wanted something different. They wanted a Messiah, all right, but they wanted in their understanding and their vision. They didn't want what God eventually sent. Now, let's go to chapter 15 of the Gospel of John in your book. Jesus takes this and changes the idea a little bit. It wasn't really Israel in itself that was important. It was the God or the owner of the vineyard who was really the important person. Okay. And Jesus is now, or rather John is now making that rather clear with his understanding of what Jesus has said, which is, I am the vine, and my father is the vine grower. He takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and every one that does, he prunes so that it bears more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. Now, let me just stop there and explain. We still have God the Father who is the owner of the vineyard. But Jesus is the vine. And Jesus is the one to whom we are attached. But if we do not have a relationship with Jesus, then we cannot bear fruit. And as you probably know, if you've seen grapevines in the winter, they're all pruned back to the main vine and all the branches are gone, okay? Because the good wine only comes on the new branches. If branches are left on a vine, they kind of tend to go back to wild grapes, like it mentioned in the earlier version of this. Okay. The pruning. The pruning is done on all of the vines in the winter. But those who remain in Christ come back in the springtime. Pruning is something that is done for our good, for our uh, better behavior, better performance, better beliefs, etc. Um, when we have problems, 
we always say, and you've often, I'm sure you've all heard this, why me? You know, and there was a very, a couple of weeks ago, uh, right after the Haiti earthquake, uh, there was a very poignant picture. It was a drawing um, of a poor Haitian person praying, obviously, and it again said, why me or why us, I think it said, really. And you, you could just feel the, the anguish and, and so forth. But there are reasons for natural disasters. And it isn't that God picks that country or that nation or this house or whatever. You know, uh, earthquakes were not new to uh, that area of the Caribbean. Nor is it new to the Philippines and, and Japan and, and China, uh, or even to the east coast, or west coast, rather, of California. We know that those things are going to happen over a period of time. And just like the unfortunate people in um, Mississippi, Louisiana, New Orleans, etc., if they dare to build in an area that is below sea level, and expect nothing to ever happen, the foolish. And so things do happen, okay? And what we should not do is blame God for them. And yet, unfortunately, many people do. Praying to God and say, what can I learn from all of this is fine. Uh, but blaming God for them, uh-uh. Okay? You are already pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. People who have accepted Christ, really accepted Christ, and really have a relationship with him, will not ask for things like, you know, last uh, meeting we talked about uh, praying for the lottery, you know, and tacking on Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. Well, if you really are attached to Christ in a firm belief relationship, you won't ask for things that are not within your uh, general area of responsibility and circumstances. Okay? Let's go on. Remain in me as I remain in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. Now that doesn't mean that an individual that has no relationship with Christ can't do good deeds or good works. But they are simply not in accordance with God's will. It is only when you are truly connected with Christ in a relationship and you work through what he wants of you that you are given credit for doing his work. Just as Jesus says he does the Father's work, we who are in a committed relationship with Christ does his work. 
They might seem like ours, and we might get the credit, but if you are truly uh, sincere and humble, you'll give the credit to God, even though it may be in a silent prayer. Okay. Anyone who does not remain in me will be thrown out like a branch and wither. People will gather them and throw them into a fire and they will be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. See, this is a little bit clearer than when we read that last week. Last week it was kind of a carte blanche, ask anything of the Father and he will give it to you. It's not what is really meant by that statement, and here it is repeated, but in a little clearer way. If you remain in me, in other words, if there is a committed relationship and you understand your place and your relationship with Christ, then you're not going to ask for a lot of things that have nothing to do with that relationship. Ask for whatever you want, and it will be done for you. Okay. So, what you may ask for, or might ask for, are the grace to fulfill a responsibility. If God has given you a certain responsibility, or a certain job to do, and you feel inadequate, uh, or you feel that there is something missing, you don't understand, or you don't have the resources or whatever, but you feel strongly that he has given you a job to do, then pray for whatever is lacking and you will get it without any qualification. Right? Because he can't give you a job without giving you the resources or the ability or the circumstances to fulfill it. And remember one thing. It's not always the end result that counts. It's the willingness to try to accomplish it. That's far more important, the end result. <clears throat> By this, in other words, if you remain in me and, and I in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. The Father is glorified by you fulfilling your responsibility. That is what the whole book of glory is about. The idea that Jesus is fulfilling the mission that he was sent on by the Father. And as we said in the first meeting, the, book, the word glory in this case is somewhat like victory, except generally victory is applied to a one-time, one-event thing, where this is such a magnificent mission that Jesus has accomplished that it is elevated to glory rather than just victory. Although later on you will see where Jesus says, I have, over <coughs> I have overcome the world, um, which is essentially the same thing.
Again, he's repeating the statement, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in him. The, the son is always subjected to the father in this culture and even in the divine relationship between uh, Christ and his father. All right. And therefore, we must be in that same committed relationship. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, I asked you in the home reading assignment to give me a definition of joy. Anybody willing to try that? Don't give me an explanation or an example, but a definition. All right, Connie? Well, see, you you just said it right there. It's a re that's a result, but that is not a definition of joy itself. Okay. What's that? <laughs> the commercial I saw on TV last night that was joyful if you have any BMW. Oh well, yeah, well, okay, we'll leave that one alone. Anyone else? A definition of joy. Okay. Let me give you, um, and before I give you the answer, let me give you an example of um, two people go to see a movie. They come out, well, how did you like it? Oh, I thought it was just great. In other words, you said, eh, it was all right. Two people go into a restaurant. They both order the same thing. One likes it, the other doesn't. What's happening here? Okay. Uh, two people read the same book. One thinks it's great, the other, yeah, stinks. Joy is an expression of our values. Joy is an expression of our values. In fact, there is just so happens that there is a closing prayer uh, to one of the liturgies in ordinary time that uses that exact definition. But the whole idea is there's nothing wrong with two people sharing or, or having the same dinner in a restaurant and one liking it and one not. It's just that their tastes are different. Their values in taste are different. And so, you know, the same way with the movie. Their tastes or their values for whatever is depicted in that movie are different. And so it causes them to uh, accept it differently. There's nothing wrong with that unless your values are uh, not in line with the calling that God has given you. All right. You must raise those values up to be equal to what God is asking of you. 
the whole idea of thinking that just by going to church on Sunday, you have you are a good Catholic or a good Christian. Okay, no. Now, not you're not going to get slapped on the wrist or anything for that, but that is very well. Let's put it this way: there is far more to it than just going to church on Sunday. And so many people think that that's all is necessary. Well, I'm going to church on Sunday and I'm a good person. What else do I need to do? Meaning that they don't plan to do anything. All right. And unfortunately, they're missing the boat. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to go to hell in a handbasket, you know, if they died the next day. I'm not implying that. It's not up to me to say who goes to hell or heaven or wherever. Um, but that is not what God is asking of you. He wants a relationship with you, a one-on-one -on -one type of relationship. And once you reach that point, it is a beautiful, beautiful way to live, that you can virtually accept any kind of problem and deal with it. It doesn't mean that you're going to be totally blissfully free of all problems from there on. No way. Sometimes you get more. Can you think of any saint that has led a blissful life without any problems? I can't think of a single one. And I've got all kinds of books on saints at home. I can't think of a single one. They've all had serious problems. Look at the apostles. The only one who lived a long life and apparently died a natural death is John himself. The others were all martyred. And of course, Judas, as you know, committed suicide. So, if all of those great saints, such as St. Paul, was beheaded, have ended their life after a long struggle, what we're talking about here in a committed relationship, giving you the peace and the grace and the strength to handle virtually anything, doesn't mean that you don't experience these problems. You experience the problems that all people do. But you know how to handle them. And you know how to accept them. And you're not alone. Because Christ is there with you in the form of the Holy Spirit helping you constantly. That's right. That's right. So I guess historically people tend to put the word joy in a positive Expression. Yes. But that's not. No. It is all in how you interpreted whatever you are experiencing at the time. And like I said, some people will, will discard it because they don't like it. It doesn't go, you know, fit them or whatever. And some people do have a very negative nature. And they. Can have 
Oh, but they can have, yes, they can have joy, but it's the wrong kind of joy. And it's not joy that we would think of are called joy. Okay? It, it, it's not as easy as it may think. Please do. Please do. That's right. I always say, you don't have to accept what I teach, but if you died tomorrow, you would go. <laughs> yes, uh, Maria? Like I said, it came right out of the, out of the lectionary from church. No, but doesn't it doesn't it fit? Um, I have to mull that over too. Expressing value of the church, say dictionary. No, I know, but oh, okay. it's the lectionary. But I mean yes. the, the sort of common definition of joy. Most common definitions of joy are really not definitions; they're examples. You might get your jolly without a beating the hell out of something. <laughs> that's a negative. That's a negative joy. Yeah, no, that's no. something. That's actually you're saying. Uh, on one instance, uh, the values may be different. Another, what may somebody may have joy and the other not Well, that's right. That's right. But what you see, the idea, the concept of joy can be different for different people, and. As this lady over here said, it could be negative as well as positive. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yes. It all depends on the relationship with God and the understanding of your role in God's plan of salvation. No, no, I, no, that's true. But yeah, well, all right. I think we better go on. <laughs> okay. At verse fourteen, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves. I don't recall Jesus ever calling anybody slaves, but uh, the, the understanding here is that teachers and, pu and, and students or pupils at this time, the student was always kind of looked upon as a slave to the master, right? You know, we, we have a sort of a, a degree above the baccalaureate degree and lower than the doctorate. That's called a master. It comes from this ancient Greek understanding of the teacher who is a master. All right. And the students were looked upon pretty much as slaves. Uh, not so much in the work sense, but in the relationship sense. Okay. Um, but Jesus is now saying that we are no longer 
slaves to a God who is demanding. We are friends, and that's the way we should look to God as a friend. I have called you friends because I have told you everything I have heard from my Father. It was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And this I command you, to love one another. Now, even though Jesus is speaking to his apostles, he is also telling that to us through this writing. It is not what he's telling the apostles is not limited just to the apostles, but to all of us. That as we remain connected to him in a personal relationship, then we can ask for anything that fits that relationship and fits our role in God's plan of salvation, and we will receive it. The whole whole idea of uh, the church now is the church is collectively the combination of all committed Christians. When we say that, we are not singling out any one community or any one role within the church. It used to be... (coughs) particularly before Vatican II, that the church always had a sort of a, had a look of a a pyramid, you might say, with God being up here, and then the Pope, and then the Cardinals, and then the bishops, and, you know, the Monsignori, and a few other roles in here, and then finally, the real people, okay? Vatican II has changed that concept. God in the center and all of these roles are out here in different ways. And we are scattered among all of these. So that the relationship of an individual to God can be whatever you make it, whatever you want it to be, through your relationship with Christ. So there is no need to have this hierarchy and this pyramid form, and that has sort of been done away with. The idea is now that we are all equal in the eyes of God, Some have greater responsibilities than others, but we all have the opportunity to approach God through Jesus Christ. 